Father, as we open your word together, we pray for open hearts and minds to receive what you have for us. Teach us, encourage us, challenge us, or help us to become more like your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So we're coming up on the end of daylight saving time next week. Those moments where you go to sleep and then you wake up and either you've lost an hour of your life or you can go back to sleep because you have another hour of your life. But like time just changes right overnight. Um, For me, sometimes it does not require daylight saving time for that to happen. There are moments where I'm just sitting there and it feels like I'm in a time warp because I look up and like an hour has gone by. You ever had that happen? Like, where did that go? Um, Sometimes it feels like a week or two, like, oh my gosh, it's when? We're almost to November. Like, I can hardly believe that. Time is just this weird thing. But imagine this happened to you. Imagine you went to sleep, and it was 1,300-something, possibly 26, and you woke up, and it was 1,926. And I'm not asking you to do that as like some weird sci-fi story kind of thing. That actually happened. 100 years ago today, Turkey became an independent country for the first time. October 29th, 1923. The leader, Mustafa Kemal, he wanted to change the country. He wanted to modernize it. And he had a vision for doing it that required changing just about everything, including the calendar. He literally went from the Islamic calendar to the Gregorian calendar overnight, and there's a 600-year difference. He not only did that, he changed the script away from Arabic to Latin because they needed a Western language. He did that overnight. Um, Libraries, publishers, everything. Within one generation, there were kids who couldn't read the letters their parents had written. I mean, it just this drastic change because he had a vision for what was the most important thing, and he put everything into making that happen. What is the most important thing in your life? It's more than a hypothetical question. I don't want you to shout out what that is, but what is the most important thing for you? What drives you? What what influences all the decisions that you make, the ways that you interact with people, how you want to use your time? Is it your family? Is it your job? Is it a sports thing that you just can't control? Like, what is it? Because that's the question that's going to be asked this morning. The greatest. Open your Bible, if you would, to Matthew chapter 22. Um, There are Bibles in the pews, if you need them. It's on page 1409 in that Bible. Matthew chapter 22. Page 1409. We're on verse 34. 
Matthew 22 and verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Um, there's something missing in the translation that is in Greek that tells you they get together for the same purpose, for the same reason. Um, They also want to do what the Sadducees did, what the previous Herodians and disciples of the Pharisees did. They want to test him. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Now, this is really important to understand for the, the story. Right? In the past attempts to catch Jesus, they did it in two different ways. The first, they asked him a question where they wanted to trap him in his answer. Because if he supported Herod, he was in trouble, or Caesar, he's in trouble. If he supported the Jews, he's in trouble. He could only answer one or the other. They wanted to catch him in the answer itself. The next test by the Sadducees was a theological slash logical question. Basically, they kind of wanted to make him look dumb. Um, You're trying to say this can happen, and yet, let me give you a scenario. There's no way it can happen, right? This one is different. They're asking him a question, and we'll see the question in a moment. Um, It's a question that is actually being debated during the time. There's lots of thoughts on the question that's about to be asked. It's not so much how he answers. It's the person asking the question. It's an expert in the law. Right? Let me give you an example of what I mean. A number of years ago, I was on staff at a large church. We averaged about 500 people in the sanctuary on services. And there was a Sunday where I got up and I was preaching a message out of 2 Corinthians. And I had to make a point that was dependent on the Greek language. So I get up there, and I'm, I'm giving my sermon, and I get to the moment where I'm about to start talking about Greek, and I notice out of the corner of my eye, there is a gentleman sitting in our congregation by the name of Daniel Wallace. I would be surprised if any of you know who Daniel Wallace is, but there were some people there who knew who Daniel Wallace was. He is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary who teaches Greek. He was my Greek teacher, and he is literally world-renowned. His most, well, it was not recent then. It was recent at that point. Uh, His most recent book was Advanced Greek Grammar. I saw him, and I froze. (laughs) Because I thought, what if I get this wrong? Um, Is there anything I can say that, I mean, any little thing that's off, he is going to know that it is off. In fact, I could actually say the right thing, and he knows so much about Greek, he could make me think I said the wrong thing. (laughs) That's this test. It's an expert in the law. It doesn't matter how Jesus answers it. This guy's going to know more. This guy will be able to take whatever Jesus says and turn it. That's what they're hoping for. Now, as a side note, the first time I told this illustration that I just gave you guys was a couple years later at a different church that I was pastoring at. 
And I got up, and I was giving the same illustration. Daniel Wallace came that morning to church. <laughs> he had never been there before. I, I almost had to stop and not do it because I couldn't believe he was there. Um, I also called him out in the middle of the service because he was my great professor, and it was a smaller church, but it was crazy. I kind of expected him to be here this morning. <laughs> he's not, I don't think, unless he's hiding somewhere. But that is, that's the test. Right, whatever you answer, I'm going to be able to trap you in it. So, the question. Here's what this expert says. Teacher, much like all the others, it's very appropriate. You know, he's, he's trying to undermine Jesus, so he starts very kindly. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, if you go and you look at the law and you trace it all out, there are 613 commandments, with 10 of them being the 10 commandments that everybody is somewhat familiar with. Right? 613. Well, trying to do 613 commandments would be rather difficult. So you had the lighter and the weightier commandments. Now, it didn't mean that one was, you know, like you could just ignore them. It's just sometimes you have to prioritize things. And of those 613, they were having this conversation about which is the greatest one. Like if we really have to make decisions, which is the one we should be really, really focused on? That's the question. How does Jesus answer that question? Verse 37, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. He quotes what is called the Shema. It's the passage out of Deuteronomy that was read this morning. It is a verse or a, a line, a prayer that the Jews were saying every single day. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Right? He quotes that out and he says, this is it. But I, I want to break it down a little bit. Right? I want you to see what this means or what it would have meant to them perhaps so that we have a better understanding what this is. Because according to Jesus, I asked you the question, what's the greatest thing for you? He is saying, for him, this is the greatest thing right here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. Heart, mind, soul. Um, strength is actually in Deuteronomy, but it's not in this quote. Um, so let me break it down. Let me start with the verb. Love. Every time I hear this talked about, there's an emphasis on how this is not an emotion, that it is an action. However, if you read Jewish scholars, many of them will tell you it is both. That yes, we can get lost, especially in you know, our Western world, in the idea of love and the you know, love at first sight and our emotions and all those types of things. But we can also err on the other side to say there is no emotion involved, and it's just an action. This word has both. This word is that we have an emotion for God, but that we have an action for God. In fact, when John writes his epistle, he actually says, love for God is obeying his commands. It is active. Right? Think of it in this way. Um, think about the pe some people in your life. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a really good friend. Think about the ways that you show you love that person. 
by doing things for them, by being loyal to them, by noticing them, by sitting and listening to them, um, by sacrificing for them. Scripture consistently says the action we are to have toward God is to obey him. That obedience is not just a duty, but it is a way of saying, God, I love you. I'm doing these things. So Jesus starts by saying, love God, and then modifies it. He modifies it in two ways. First, he says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. Now, we can break that down except imagine a Venn diagram with three circles. Because these three words overlap a lot. In essence, here's what they mean. All of you. How you think, how you feel, how you act, your your will, your decisions. It encompasses you as a person. Love God with all of who you are. And what's interesting is the primary thing here is not even those areas. It's what modifies them that is the most important thing. All. All of your heart. All of your soul. All of your mind. Love God undividedly. Don't just love him with part of who you are. Love him with everything you are and have. That's this commandment. Um, I want to introduce you to somebody who I think has an idea of what all means. Can you go ahead and go to the next slide? Um, this lady here who has got goats with her, who is walking through New York City with her goats, um, this is Beverly Shaw. Beverly packed up her goats in September into her car. In the front seat, she put down some hay, and she drove from Indiana to New York. While she was in New York, she was standing on the corner, wandering through the streets, handing out pamphlets. What in the world is Beverly Shaw doing in New York? Let me tell you about her husband. Her husband's name is David. They have been married for 43 years. She was 20. He was 25 when they married. They have traveled all over the place. They jokingly said recently they were going to renew their vows, but instead of saying honor and respect, they wanted to say pester and harass one another. (laughs) Why was she in New York? Her husband was being held in Indiana in a center for his mental stability and his health. And she wanted him out. She did not believe what the doctors were telling her. She did not believe what the social workers were telling her. She believed they were over-medicating him, turning him into a zombie, and not letting him live his life. And she tried everything she could there, so this was her thought. I need to let as many people know as possible what is going on with my husband, and I need to raise at least $5,000 so I can get a lawyer and I can get him out. Where can I do that? And she thought to herself, 
where is the most crowded place I can think of? She went to New York City. And she began walking the streets, talking to everybody who would talk to her, handing out pamphlets. She made this whole pamphlet showing her husband pictures before and after, before the medication and after the medication, telling the whole story. She was sleeping and still is actually. She's still there. She's sleeping in her car. She has a pillow propped up with her goats next to her. She eats one meal a day. There is nothing that is going to stop her from trying to get her husband back. She is all in with everything she has. What would it look like if you were all in for God? What would that be in your life if you gave it all? Go ahead and go to the next screen. So, Jesus says this, the first and greatest commandment is to love God. Love him with everything you have. And then he adds, and the second is like it. Final part of his answer. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's kind of interesting. 613 commandments or like most of this. Um, all of this. <laughs> And he says it all hangs on those two things. Love the Lord with all you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think this one is hard. In some ways, it's really easy to understand. But it can be really hard to do. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Have you ever thought about how you love yourself? I mean, it's not something we necessarily like sit around going, oh, how do I love myself? Let me think of the ways. Um, we don't do that. In fact, oftentimes we're not very good at self-care. Um, but that doesn't really interfere with what I think is going on here. Here are some things I think we do for ourselves. We often get our, give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We often look for, even if it takes a while because we get overwhelmed, we look for what we need or want and try to make that happen. I think we often, and this is the opposite with people. You see, if Patty does something to me, I am very likely to judge Patty off of her actions, even though I judge myself off of my motives. Wouldn't it be amazing if I thought, all right, what Patty just did to me is so rude and mean. But, I mean, she does it all the time. I mean, if you knew Patty, it just, you know. But if I sat down and I said, Patty, what you did was hurtful. Why did you do it? And to learn that Patty was going through something really hard, and she snapped at me, not really meaning it to. And, but we often judge people on their actions while we judge ourselves on our motives. And if we do judge the motives of other people, we often assume what those motives are instead of actually figuring out what those motives are. If we just treated people the way we treat ourselves and the way we want people to treat us, we'd be loving our neighbors as ourselves. It's going to take a little time, and noticing people is much more harder than ignoring them. 
but we have to take the time to notice them. And I don't think it takes huge, giant, grand gestures. Let me finish Beverly's story. When she drove to New York from Indiana, she had never parallel parked before. Guess what? In New York, she had to parallel park. And a stranger saw her attempting to get into a spot and stopped what he was doing and helped to guide her into the spot. Loving your neighbor as yourself. What would you have wanted in that moment? When she got out onto the street, she had numerous people who listened to her story. And there was one person who said, I listened because I could tell there was something wrong. What does it take in New York to even notice that one person has something wrong with them? I mean, if somebody in New York is trying to stop you with a pamphlet, what do you think? You're trying to sell me something. You're trying to get me to go somewhere. You want to hand me this free thing, so I'll buy this other thing. People noticed and listened to her story. Some of them ended up crying with her and hugging her. There were business people who took her flyers back to their business and left them for others to get when they came into their business. There were police officers who drove by where she was in her car at night, asleep, propped up on a pillow, and apparently in New York you're not supposed to do that. But they let her sleep. One of them gave her $20 to try to help out a little bit. Loving your neighbor as yourself doesn't necessarily require grand gestures. Sometimes it will, but it does require noticing other people judging other people in the way that you judge yourself or would want people to judge you so that you can do something for them. So Jesus says two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. And and for us, it is about imagining if I actually put those things front and center in my life. Um. And here's the thing about Jesus. He's not going to force you to do that. So where I started at with Mufasa, it's actually not Mufasa, Mustafa. Mufasa's from the Lion King. (laughs) Um, Wrong guy. Um, (laughs) Yes, he had a vision for Turkey, and he is well-beloved by many people in Turkey. They celebrate him. He did incredible things. He was also ruthless. There was no place for dissent. If you would not do what he wanted you to do, you would be jailed or worse. That is not going to happen with Jesus. You and I have to make a decision. Do we believe that what he says is true? that the most important thing that we could do in every part of our lives for our families, for our jobs, for our neighbors, whatever it be, is to love the Lord with everything we have and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Will we step into that kind of life? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that it can guide us, teach us, 
hopefully encourage us. Not a single one of us here is perfect. We have all screwed up more times than we can count. And yet, serving you, we can constantly come to you. There is forgiveness. There is grace. There is new starts. And Lord, what I pray for right now is a start for all of us of a life focused on loving you with all that we have and loving those around us in the ways that we love ourselves. Lord, help us to be those kind of people. In Jesus' name, amen.